This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 18th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is calling for what he terms a humanitarian no-fly zone to, in his words, close the skies over Ukraine. Cato's Eric Gomez details how U.S.-imposed no-fly zones have worked in the past and why that's given many lawmakers a false sense of how this no-fly zone would work in practice. The most notable example to me that sticks out in my mind of discussions of no-fly zones was a Democratic primary debate in 2016, uh, where you had uh, then-candidate and, I believe, recent former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She might have been current Secretary of State at the time. um, And Jim Webb who uh, decorated veteran who understood a thing or two about war, um, basically poo-pooing the notion that uh, Hillary Clinton was expressing with respect to support of no-fly zones. And I I immediately thought to myself, well, I got to go with the guy who's spent a lot of time in war having being fairly skeptical about no-fly zones. How has the U.S. used no-fly zones in the past, and uh, what made those experiences different from what we would be looking at in Ukraine? I think most Americans, when they think of the term or they hear the term, what comes to mind for me is the U.S. experience in Libya, where uh, Muammar Gaddafi was fighting a civil war and pushing towards a city, I believe Benghazi, and the U.S. imposed a no-fly zone to protect civilians via, uh, I believe, NATO. And it worked in the sense that Gaddafi didn't make it there, but then that also turned into a regime change operation that ended with him getting killed by rebels. Um, also, Iraq and what happened in between the, the first Gulf War in the early 90s and the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where the U.S. sort of had a no-fly zone over large parts of the country. So I I think when people think of that, they think, all right, these are operations that are, number one, effective, number two, low cost, because in neither instance did the U.S. experience much in the way of losses, Um, and number three, relatively easy to do. And I think in the case of a no-fly zone over Ukraine, partial or otherwise, it is none of those three things. It would be very costly, very dangerous, and and most likely lead to a significant conventional conflict between the U.S. and Russia. With specific respect to the Libya no-fly zone, I've heard it described as a legal fig leaf. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, it basically enabled the U.S. to engage in full-blown air war uh, and disrupt, shall we say, the war powers resolution. Yeah, I, I, I think that would be correct because it started as a no-fly zone and then it turned into striking ground targets too. And I think this is something that in general, you know, once you get into a conflict, it's hard to tell where things will end and where things will go next. And so that's one thing that I worry about with the discussion of a no-fly zone is that, okay, let's say, let's say you put it in and it's actually successful, but the Russians don't leave with the ground forces. Does then that lead to calls of, well, I mean, we already have the presence for the no-fly zone. We should expand the scope of our operations more and more. And it's it's a very difficult to predict and very weighty decision. And I worry that a lot of the current discussion about it in the in the press and among certain policymakers 
is treating it very lightly as something that you just sort of, it's like Michael Scott in the office, right? He just yells, I declare bankruptcy. And he's like, I didn't set it, I declare it. We can't just like declare a no-fly zone and that's the end of the story, right? Then you have to actually implement the thing. And that's where the danger comes. And as you noted, Ukraine is quite large. Yes. Um, so so even just from like a operational details perspective, Ukraine is very large. I believe it, if you laid it over the map of the United States, it would stretch from something like, um, you know, where like Michigan is to the East Coast. Um, so if you're talking about a no-fly zone over the whole country, how are you getting air power over eastern Ukraine and over these cities? And how long do they have on station, right? Because if you need to close the sky like Zelensky called for, you really need a, a pretty continuous aircraft presence. Um, and you're not going to be operating aerial refuelers because they're too vulnerable to long-range surface-to-air missiles. So it, it just just the 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 logistics and like the and that part is hard on its own. And then you have to factor in the resistance from the Russian Air Force and ground forces. And I know they haven't been all that effective, but they're certainly not out of the fight yet. And and I think that would be you, you, there would be casualties from the side imposing the no fly zone. I, I don't think that's avoidable. Right. Uh, and uh, as you sort of alluded to, uh, the fight against a U.S. imposed no-fly zone would be coming from Moscow. It would be directed and uh, right. being operated from the ground somewhere in uh, mm -hmm. in in Moscow, and it's not just it's not just dogfighting in the air. No, no. If if you really want to to implement one that's effective and over as much area as possible, the U.S. slash NATO slash whoever is implementing a no-fly zone needs to be prepared to bomb targets on Russian territory that can, like air defense systems that can range into Ukrainian airspace. So you're doing suppression of enemy air defense in the territory of the other country. Uh, that's that's an escalation, right? That 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 is a a fundamentally different. The Ukrainians have fired a, a rare missile or two into Russia. This would be like a sustained aerospace campaign. It, it's completely different, and it's much it's much harder to pull off, and it's much more dangerous if you're on the Russian end of. Let's say it works, right? Let's say the U.S. or NATO or whoever effectively rolls back a Russian air defense network. Then, then if you're sitting in Moscow, it's like, oh shoot, what are what are the aims now, right? And this is where you get into potential nuclear escalation risks and concerns. So it's a very it's a very weighty thing and I and I I wish that the discussion around it captured more of that weight. Um but it seems to be falling into the category of we see bad things happening, we want to do something about it and this comes to mind as a thing we have done in other places recently that's worked, therefore let's consider it. So uh there's no question that bombing military facilities, military hardware in Russia is an act of war. It, it, right. it, you, it would be almost impossible to deny that. Yes, um, exactly. And, you know, I, I guess this is where you get into the discussions of, well, what if it was just a no-fly zone over a certain portion of Ukraine? Or, well, what if it was just a, a no-fly zone, yeah, over like some kind of bounded area? and 
okay. I mean, you, it, 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 at that point, though, I think you're still dealing with the reality of, well, a little fly zone over any part of Ukraine will require NATO air presence over those places and being prepared to shoot down Russian aircraft or cruise missiles that enter them. So you're still in it, right? In for an inch and or yeah, in for an inch and for a mile or in for a penny and for a pound. Um, so at that point, you know, if, if you're already in it, there's, there's not much stopping you from going further. <laughs> Who are the leaders of the let's just do a no fly zone caucus? Uh, President Zelensky of, of, of Ukraine of is, is a big proponent. Not, not, I mean, I don't not not an elected U.S. Uh, representative, right, but right. Uh, yes, he's definitely asking for it. Yes. And I think he is asking for it in a way that leans towards the more maximalist interpretation of, you know, he's saying close the skies, right? Not just close the skies, but only over this portion, um, which, yeah. I, if I was in his position, I'd probably be wanting and calling for the same thing. Um, so I, I don't think that's like, I, I understand why he's doing that. Um, on the U.S. side, it seems, you know, the Biden administration doesn't want it. Um, they've been very clear from the get-go and continue to be so that they don't want to get drawn directly into the war. Um, so they're going to provide military equipment and aid, um, but not go further, which I think is smart. Um, and there are some members of Congress, um, Brian Fitzpatrick, a, re a Republican out of Pennsylvania, notably uh, was quoted by someone in the press today after Zelensky's talk about, you know, doing a non-kinetic, right, this idea of using non-destructive technologies like EMPs or radar or sonar. Sonar keeps coming up. Sonar doesn't work that way um, to do this. And, and it's so there's a few, I think, mostly on the Republican side, um, but a few people in the Congress calling for it. I, I don't think it's something that will gain widespread support, but there there's definitely a few sort of people calling for it. And especially from the perspective of this terrible humanitarian thing is happening and what we're doing isn't enough. Therefore, we must think of what comes next in the in the chain of options we have. That's kind of the mentality. President Zelensky called it a humanitarian no-fly zone. <laughs> and presumably that's better somehow. Um, it's not clear to me, at least, how that's different. I, I, I think it lies in the in the sort of rationale and the framing, right? Like you're you're doing this thing to protect civilian lives. And that is a very politically attractive and, you know, just just sort of from like a human impulse, right? To, to, to protect people from getting bombed from the air. Um, but whatever you want to call it, if, if it, if it involves the denial of airspace to the Russian military operating over Ukraine, it means shooting down Russian planes, right? And, and it, it means you know, a sort of naked act of war. Uh, and, you know, I, I, it would be a big, it would be a very big and consequential step. What should the U.S. do? Uh, you know, they're short of, short of closing the sky, as President Zelensky put it. Uh, he has called for basically every kind of weapon the U.S. could send to him. Uh, what is appropriate for the U.S. to uh, engage in here? So I, I, 
I think mostly it's a question of adjusting what we're already doing. I, I think providing defensive weaponry like javelins, stingers, right? The, the stuff that Ukrainian forces can use to continue to resist and hold out. I think that is fine, right? I, I think we should continue that. Um, anything that involves, you know, the, this big uh, controversy over should the Polish provide air defense or aircraft to the Ukrainians, like some old MiG uh, flankers. I, I think that's also okay, although it's a little more escalatory. But if you're going to do that, just don't publicize it. Keep it. Try and keep it secret. And then the final thing that I'd suggest is getting clear and clearly communicating to Russia what what takes some of the pressure off. Right? What are the things that Russia can do to get sanctions relief? Because presumably, because I think this is a big problem with the current strategy is. We've we've turned the punishment dial up to eleven very quickly, which fine. But if you want to sort of coerce Putin, if you want to kind of get him to stop what he's doing, there needs to be some kind of path out. Even if the path out is something he is unlikely to take, um, but having that in place and saying like, okay, if you withdraw troops from these areas, this sanction comes off. If you stop sending missiles, this thing gets reduced, right? Something like that. So that way we can maybe try and, you know, get a negotiated end to this thing. Um, and yeah, it's going to be hard. I don't think Putin necessarily takes it. Um, but having some kind of conception of that is important. And I'm not really seeing too much of that from the U S and its partners of, okay, we've, we've added the punishment now where does the coercion come in? Because if it's all just punishment, I mean, that's an option, but it doesn't really incentivize any kind of change in behavior, right? If the pain is going to exist regardless, why not go for, go for it all if you're Putin? Uh, so that's what I would recommend, those three things. Eric Gomez directs defense policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.